my ambition is, can I vibrate on the highest plane or level possible? That means that I don't have ambition for myself. I have ambition for everyone else. And through that is where I meet my maximum potential. And if people would see that, the world would be so different. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Elizabeth Leiba, writer, college professor, and advocate for Black businesswomen. She shares with us her journey to understand the important historical context of race in America and how she's on a mission to help Black women feel supported and heard. I love her message that the most important job for leaders is to develop their people, and really listening to Black women's needs is a critical part of that. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast, Liz. It's great to have you on. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. I am too. So you have done many things in your career. You're an educator, you're an advocate, and now you're an author. And you recently released a book called I'm Not Yelling, A Black Woman's Guide to Navigating the Workplace. And in it, you're really trying to empower Black women to find their voice in a potentially toxic work environment and to help them succeed. So I'd love to really start there with this book and ask you, why did you want to write this? And what's the message that you want your readers to receive? That's such a good question. And it's kind of a complex, layered question. But I think the shortest version is that I really wanted to empower Black women. And I wanted to give Black women a sense of context about why they were feeling what they were feeling and to validate those feelings. Because we've seen lately in the news that Black women are exiting corporate spaces in record numbers. Black women are feeling overwhelmed, stressed, tired. There's a sense of a mental health crisis that has been happening. And I think it wasn't really brought to the surface until COVID-19. And a lot of Black women were obviously in the workplace and then working from home and having to juggle and balance all of those responsibilities. And I think there was a collective sense of what is happening. Why do I feel this way? And because I was very vocal already on the LinkedIn platform, and I had been speaking out about social justice, and I had been speaking about racial inequity, and I'd been thinking and speaking about police brutality and racial profiling, I really wanted to pivot into, as a Black woman speaking through my lens, why was it that the women I was speaking with had such a visceral reaction to seeing George Floyd murdered? Why were women across the board from every space, whether it was higher education, which is my industry, but it was also happening in media, it was happening in marketing, business, finance, every sector where I was speaking with women in my advocacy role, those women all expressed just a sense that they did not feel like they belonged in the spaces that they were in. They felt like their leadership was being challenged. They felt like they were constantly on edge. They constantly felt... their position and place was not secure. And that was literally from anyone from the top levels of some of the biggest companies in the country to people that were entry-level workers. And it seemed that this phenomenon needed to be explored some more because I was feeling the same thing. And that's literally why I started to write the book. I wanted to advocate for Black women And I knew that social justice and racial equity was important, but I felt like as a Black woman, I also had a responsibility to find out why I was feeling this way. And I was surprised to understand and see that it wasn't just me. 
And that was something that as an educator, I've been a college professor for about 15 years and as an academician at heart, even though I'm trained as a writer, I went to school for journalism. I never really was a writer because I was too afraid to be a writer. So even though I went to school on a full scholarship for journalism, I went to University of Florida, I had never actually written professionally. So I knew that I had a lot of those feelings, those feelings of doubt, but I thought it was just something that I needed to overcome. And what I found out from writing the book was that it wasn't something that needed to be overcome internally. There were a lot of external factors that were causing a lot of these feelings that women across the board were expressing to me. And that's why I wrote it. I wanted to take my personal experience, the interviews I had done for my podcasting with Ebony, some of the feedback that I was getting when I was posting on the LinkedIn platform from professional women. I wanted to take all of that and try to come up with a historical context because I teach American literature. So from a historical perspective, where does this come from? Because we know that racially minoritized folk, those that have been racialized as Black, because Black is really, as an identity, it's not really a thing. It's something that was created to say, this is what you are. That is something that has happened for a few hundred years. So it's not been something that is innate. So historically, how do we put that into context with why Black women feel the way that we feel today? And how do we create some kind of context using statistics and studies and research that's coming from all of these think tanks across the country, Rand, McKinsey, Lean In, everybody's doing studies on that. But then how does that relate to the experience of Black women currently in the workplace? How do I empower Black women to understand what's happening to them? And how do they create a space where they can understand that behavior, not internalize and pathologize their own behavior? And then what's the way forward? Because obviously if there's a problem and Black women are exiting the workplace in record numbers, Black women are not waiting for these places to become more equitable. They're saying, you know what? I don't have time or space to wait for you to figure this out. And based on the research I was doing, the Black women are the biggest demographic, over 100% increase in women that are just saying, I'm just going to start my own business. But then looking at the numbers, they really weren't making a lot of money because of the fact that they weren't getting the venture capital funding. They didn't really have the resources to start businesses. And they were even more stressed out because they're exiting these spaces, but then finding the same struggles with just trying to create a living outside of those spaces. But for the majority of women, even the stress of having a business and not really making as much as what they were making still was less than what they were experiencing in corporate America. I wanted to put all those pieces together to understand why and support Black women so that they can navigate not only within those spaces, but also look at what the future might look like if they decide to step out of those spaces as well. It's so interesting to hear that this became a personal journey for you as well, that you took a lot of these conversations and learning and then thought about your own life and what it is that you were trained to do and that you wanted to do more of it, specifically the writing. I'm curious, so tell us about the recommendations in the book for Black women in terms of staying in a corporate workforce or going out and being entrepreneurs and trying to overcome the challenges that you're describing here. What are you telling them that's possible to do? When I say navigating the workplace, it was for me an internal journey. So I start there with who are you and what is your story? Because I think for a lot of Black women, and studies back this up as well, which is cited in the book, was that a lot of Black women really hadn't stepped into their authentic self. 
we're hearing a lot in the news and in media and on social media about authenticity, bring your real self to work. And that was a movement. A lot of it we didn't hear until COVID. So people were feeling disjointed. I'm working from home. I have children. I have a family. I have dinner to prepare. I have to juggle all my personal responsibilities, but yet I have to be on a Zoom for my job. I can't go into the office. So there was a merging of home and work. But for Black women, I think particularly what was happening was they did not really even understand who their authentic self was because so many Black women were code switching. When I talk about code switching, just as someone who's a professional educator and someone that has had to speak every day to classes of 20, 100, more than 100 people, whether it's faculty members training them or students speaking with them, I knew that code switching wasn't just adjusting to your audience. Code switching in this sense was something that was different. It was becoming a totally different person. It was assimilating to your environment and almost mimicking, becoming a mockery of what you thought your original self was and creating an alternate self. And I think some of the internal struggles were also a part of what I wanted to illuminate. I didn't really want to talk about salary negotiation. And I think a lot of times when we think about women's pay equity, especially with Black History Month, Women's History Month, there's a sense that women need to empower themselves more, learn how to negotiate, be more like men. But my thought process was, why do women have to assimilate and become more aggressive? Why can't they just be given fair pay like men? And the same for Black women. If Black women are being asked to now advocate harder for yourself so that I can give you fair pay, I felt like that was unfair because it really sets you up to be an advocate in a system that should be fair anyway. And I did not like that. So I felt as though instead of approaching it from here's some strategies to take your boss out to lunch and figure out what's going on inside your boss's brain, it's a bridge too far. I just felt that construct, it reads into the construct that I think is becoming really dangerous in the Western world, which is if you're oppressed or you're not getting what you need to get, then work harder and do more as opposed to society should already be fair and should work for everybody. So that was what I wanted to amplify and emphasize in the book. Who are you and who you are authentically is already good enough. You don't need to code switch or assimilate or become something that is an artificial construct of professionalism. I think a lot of women, not only Black women, women of color, and all women actually deal with this idea that there is a construct of professionalism and we don't fit it. So our job is to become something that isn't natural for us. And I also want to challenge some of those constructs because who made the idea that that is what you need to be? Somebody said that, and then we all bought into that idea. And now it's almost like we're in a play that none of us signed up to be in. It's almost like, hey, come be in this play. And we're like, I don't think I'm good for this part, but okay. And then you're acting in a play. And it's like, this is not something that even resonates with me, but you're being forced to create a character and actually act out of character. And then the production and the director is like, yeah, that's it. And you're like, no, that's not it. I don't want this for myself. And it really is ludicrous if you think about it in that way. And I think I wanted to really create that for women. Just like, hey, why are we doing this? Who are you really? And when you're stepping into a space, why are you questioning yourself? One of the things I talk about in the book is imposter syndrome. And the idea that that is like something that really only came out in the 70s, that women are being told you have imposter syndrome. And I call it imposter treatment. There's this idea that women are going into spaces and pathologizing this, oh, you know, Black women, you need 
need to kind of mold yourself into being a little bit more soft. Don't be so outspoken. And it's like, what is that? When you're going into a space and now you're second guessing yourself because somebody said you don't belong there. Of course, you're going to have lack of confidence because if everyone's been telling you your natural skill set, which is very valuable, we know that because otherwise we wouldn't even be in these spaces. Someone had to invite you there. You didn't just hop off the bus and walk into somewhere and then, hey, I'm here. Someone said you were qualified to be there. And I really wanted to amplify that idea. We have education. We have experience. Someone has hired us. Why are we being pathologized? And why is someone saying, oh, you have imposter syndrome? Get a little bit more spicy and like, you know, be more confident. Why is that? It doesn't make any sense. So I really wanted to deconstruct a lot of the narratives that have been placed on Black women. They've been placed on women of color. They've really been placed on all women. But I'm writing through the lens of a Black woman because that's my experience. I wanted to start to challenge the norms and think about why this structure is the way it is. I was on a panel the other day and I said, even for white women, I think sometimes people don't realize that oppression affects everybody. And if you have white women now with Women's History Month saying, wow, we're making good strides, 10% in Fortune 500 companies, if women are 50% of the population, it seems disingenuous to even ask us to say, oh, we're making strides, guys, come be happy. And it's like, no, I really won't be happy until representation is equal for everyone. And I think sometimes that's another thing that gets misconstrued. When I fight for women's rights, when I fight for my rights as a Black woman, because we have intersectionality, everybody wins. So I think sometimes there's a sense that oh, we don't need this as a society because we don't need to empower particular groups. We need to empower everyone. When Black women are empowered, everyone is empowered because our empathetic nature really creates that. And I want people to understand if you're in a space and you're not advocating for others, then that's a lack of empathy. That's apathy. And I don't like the idea of that because it feels selfish. And I want people to empower themselves, all people, but I have to speak for Black women because Black women have been the most disempowered and disenfranchised of all. Liz, you have an education background. As you mentioned, you've taught for a long time. And tell us about your early career in education, what inspired you in this business. I went to University of Florida. My major was actually journalism. I think people are always surprised by the fact that even though I wrote a book, I'd never written professionally before writing the book. I wrote a little bit as an intern for the Sun Sentinel in Fort Lauderdale because I I used to intern in high school and in college. But my experience at University of Florida was one that I think was the first time that I ever felt like I didn't fit, I didn't belong. I went from a very predominantly Black neighborhood in the east side of Fort Lauderdale where I was really comforted and nurtured and encouraged by mostly Black teachers and mostly Black staff and guidance counselors. And going to University of Florida, it really felt very foreign. It didn't feel like that support and nurturing environment being at a very competitive journalism school, I just did not want to go into a newsroom after I graduated. I just felt as though it did not align or fit with just the exhaustion that I felt after graduating from undergrad. So I ended up working in higher education in admissions and then pivoted to a faculty role. So I taught for about 15 years up through, actually, even through the pandemic I was teaching. And then I also worked in the C-suite of my corporate organization, which owns a college. So 
that experience really showed me the power of education, but also where education is lacking. Going on LinkedIn and seeing George Floyd's murder and seeing all of the talk around racial justice and inequity and the history of that in America, there really was a disconnect because most people didn't really seem to have a firm understanding of American history, the foundation of American history, the Black experience in America. Myself as an immigrant, I've lived here since I was 12. My parents are Caribbean background. I was born in London. I think I always look at things from a global perspective and also as an outsider. My ability to understand and have knowledge of Black history came from the fact that I really wanted to understand the Black experience because I was an immigrant. And as a child, I saw my counterparts going through things and I didn't really understand it. So I wanted to read on it and understand the history. Black History Culture Academy came out of that natural curiosity about Black history because I felt when I was having interactions with people on LinkedIn, and across social media and even in mainstream media, there was such a clutching of the pearls. There was such a, where is this coming from? And my thought process was, as someone that's an immigrant and someone that has studied American history, this is very much America. If we don't reckon with and go in the mirror and just say, this is what it is, as a person, if you're doing things in your life and you're not sure why it's happening, first thing you have to do, a counselor, a therapist will tell you, take accountability. Look at what's happening to you. Why is this happening? Why are you making these choices? What is the result of these choices? How is that impacting others around you? How does it impact the people you care about? How does it impact the world around you? But we've not done that as a country. We tend to just make decisions and just say, oh, well, this is just what happened as though the accountability doesn't lie with the person that initiated that or the person that is involved with that, the person that participates in that. And I think as a country, America has not reckoned with itself. And until we do historically reckon with the past, we will never be beyond the present. We will never be able to move into the future. And I think for Black folk, I think there's a sense that we're reconciled with it and we know what it is. It's really very academic to us. We're not emotional about it because it just is what it is. History is something that we can't control. We can only control the present, but we don't see that in our counterparts. We see a lot of deflection. We see a lot of, this is not true. We see a lot of check your facts and maybe you're looking at things wrong. Really that perpetual gaslighting, which is very frustrating because we have reckoned with this a long time ago and we're constantly asking people to reckon with history. So Black History and Culture Academy was that. It was okay as an academician, as a faculty member, as someone that teaches American literature, someone that actually is a director of instructional design and innovation. I have a responsibility to develop a framework where people that are on LinkedIn have access to knowledge about Black history culture. And there's no excuse. Most people, when I was doing surveys and posting on social media, were saying they'd never had a Black history course. They didn't know much about Black history beyond the basics about Martin Luther King or the civil rights movement. They really didn't have a strong and firm understanding of African history and how Africa was a cradle of civilization and how there were great kingdoms in Africa and everything that really exemplifies the world was in Africa long before colonization. And a lot of people didn't have that understanding. And I felt like that was important, that framework, because until we have truth, we can't have reconciliation and understanding. So that's where Black history came from. 40 classes, micro-learning courses that I encouraged people in 2021 when I launched the program just take a class, go into the platform and learn. You can do this in an afternoon. I would teach a 16 week course on history, but you don't have to do this in 16 weeks. You can take an afternoon and learn about historically black colleges and universities, learn about African oral literature. They said there was no literature in Africa. That's not true. It was oral literature. So reframe your expectations about what you should know, what you should believe and open yourself up to learning. I think that for me, education has always been something that opens up people's eyes but it can only do that 
if you're open to learning and reframing what you know. It's not education if someone's just giving you something and you're not expanding your horizons. If you already know it, then it wouldn't be educating you. It would just be reinforcing what you know already. And I think that sometimes gets lost. People feel as though education should not open you up to new ideas or you should not force through things that you thought were true, but hey, now I have a different perspective and I can expand my perspective. And that's what I wanted to provide. Yeah, that is so powerful. I think this content is so rich. What do you find most resonates with people? Can you see what they're taking most or maybe what they're commenting most on? Are there certain topics that I think really change people's minds or at least educate them in a way that's surprising to you? Yeah, I think it goes across the board. I think initially when I first started the platform, most people were very fascinated by anti-racism language and just how much that's framed by lack of understanding. So you have concepts like critical race theory, concepts like the Black Lives Matter movement, concepts and theories, woke or white supremacy. Some of these words that are being thrown around and tossed around. And if you're not really aware of historically where these ideas come from, why they're being leveraged in the way that they are and why they're important. We see this all the time on like CNN and some of these big channels where people are being asked to define critical race theory. They're being asked to define, well, what is it about woke that bothers you? And they don't really know. They have no answer because they have not taken the time to educate themselves. So I think that was the biggest takeaway I saw. I had a course or I have a course in the platform. It's called anti-racism language where I just deconstruct the language of anti-racism. Why are we saying white supremacy? What do we mean when we say systemic racism? What do we mean when we say white privilege? And I think sometimes people hear white or they hear racism or they hear supremacy and there's really a visceral reaction. People are triggered. And I think that one of the things that I wanted to emphasize when I wanted to educate and talk about this is our life is perpetual being triggered. Every time I walk outside the house, I'm triggered because I have to think about what does it mean for me to navigate a space where I may be the only one that looks like I look. And I think that's something that people in the majority kind of take for granted. There's this idea of, well, everything is great. Everything is fine for me. So it should be fine for you too. And unfortunately, that's just not true. So reckoning with history is the first step to understanding that. Because as we know, as individuals, even as we walk around, both of us today, our decisions are going to be framed based on what we did yesterday, based on what we did a month ago, based on what we did in our childhood, based on what we did in college, because that's how you frame what you do on a daily basis. So I think when people say, don't worry about the past, just worry about today, that makes absolutely no sense because none of us do that in our real lives. So it sounds like while you've written the book and you have any of the courses to reach a certain audience, LinkedIn allows you to reach a lot of decision makers and people in the corporate environment and in entrepreneurship. What do you want them to take away from your messages? How can they improve their own environments for Black women, for diverse people at large? Leaders, I think, have to develop a sense that when you're a leader, and this is something that I learned as well from my own leadership role in the corporate office of my organization. You're not there to lead products and services. You're there to lead people. And I think a lot of leaders get very distracted by profit and what makes sense from the shareholders, not necessarily even think about the customers per se. It's more who they report to, like the board or whatever their leadership hierarchy is. And I think as a leader, having empathy really means that the more that you invest in the people, even think about putting yourself in their shoes, if you can do that as someone with empathy, the more that you will develop a sense that your biggest customer is your internal customer. Your internal customer is the people that really are the ones that are going to be 
advocating for the company, out there evangelizing your products and services that will believe in you and believe that you want the best for them. I learned that in the class as a professor. I had professors that it was very evident they didn't care anything about me. It was just, I'm here to teach. If you learn, you learn. If you don't, that's your business. And that type of mentality really was hurtful and destructive for me because I felt like I was not seen. So I think for leaders, they have to see their people. They have to nurture their people. And as a college professor, when I go in the classroom, I'm so invested in the success of every single student because I already have my education. I'm already where I need to be. So for me to say, well, I don't care whether you get an education or not, I feel like that's unethical because the fact of the matter is I already have an education. So it does not take anything away from me to invest my heart and my soul into every single student because I already have what I need to have. So if you have leaders that are like, wow, I'm at the pinnacle of my career. I've made all the money I needed to make. If you're even struggling, your company is struggling, you're not struggling as badly as the frontline worker for your company. So if you think about it in those terms, that every time that you go into that office, every time that you're leading people, it's a gift that they're giving you. It's a responsibility and you have a great responsibility because they've given you that. It's not something that you just get. And I think that trust and that ability to lead people, it's on par with doctors. It's on par with anyone that people put trust in you. And if you're just there like, well, hey, I'm just here to do my job. You're really not doing your job at all. And that's really what I would love for leaders to see. Listen to your people. Listen to Black women, because Black women, we have been identified as strong and we have been identified as outspoken and we will do anything. And if we are tired, that lets you know that it is beyond frustrating because we have always had so much tolerance. And collectively, I don't think I talk to Black women I've talked to women in Canada, women in the UK, women from Africa, Black women all over the globe. And collectively, all of them are like, enough is enough. I can't do this anymore. And that is a problem. Big problem. And I just want to say this is such a powerful message and a great reminder of your leadership responsibilities. I like to tell people the further you advance in your career, the more the people part will be important to your role. And in fact, it will be your primary role and your only role when you keep going up the ladder. And I certainly have had managers who did not feel that way. And so I know very well what you're talking about. So Liz, we talk a lot on this podcast about ambition, and I think you're such a great person to ask this question. Do you consider yourself ambitious? And has that changed over time? I think initially as a young person, I was very ambitious. As a young person, I felt as though there was nothing I couldn't accomplish. And somewhere along the line, I lost that. I feel as though for the most part of my career, I have not been ambitious. I think even at University of Florida and just thinking about the steps of going into the professional world, I did not really have a lot of ambition. I did not feel as though I would be able to attain. There was a sense that I would have to work twice as hard. I would have to prove myself. I talk about in the book how I became this alternate person of what I thought would be acceptable and what I thought could be successful. But just maintaining that was so exhausting that I think very early, I just knew that I probably would not be able to attain the things I thought of when I was a child. I didn't see people that looked like me. I didn't have managers that supported me. Every single professional space I went into, I don't think there was ever one that I felt comfortable in. Never one where I felt supported, guided. I've never had a mentor ever in my professional career. And I talk about that. And most Black women have not. 
Statistically speaking, it's very difficult for women in general to find mentorship and Black women particularly and other women of color typically will not have a mentor in their professional career. And if they do, it will not be a mentor that looks like them. So I think knowing that, I don't think I've ever had a job where I didn't have conflict. I didn't have the microaggressions. I didn't have an environment that I considered toxic. And that was, I would say, without exception. So yeah, ambition, I don't necessarily think I have ever been an ambitious person other than when I was a child. My ambition now is for empowering other Black women and making sure that they know their whole, complete, they know that they're worthy, more than worthy, letting them through my story see that this is not something that is unique to them. This is not something that is their fault. I talk about this in the book. This is not your fault. And I think as a survivor myself of domestic violence and sexual assault, you do ruminate. You do say, what could I have done better? You do say, maybe if I had. There's a lot of self-deprecating, really harmful thoughts that will make you feel as though you are to blame when someone mistreats you. And I think it's really important to emphasize this for Black women, for women of color, for women in general, that we have an innate power But if we don't tap into that power, then we really are not going to meet our maximum potential in life. And for me, that is my ambition. My ambition is, can I vibrate on the highest plane or level possible that means that I don't have ambition for myself? I have ambition for everyone else. And through that is where I meet my maximum potential. And if people would see that, the world would be so different. And I think that's what I want to do. Certainly you can see and hear it and feel it coming from you. There's no question. This conversation I felt has been so meaningful in what you're trying to convey. I hear it loud and clear. And so I just want to ask one more thing, because I think you really have given so much great advice for Black women. How can others be better advocates, but even beyond advocates, real supporters for Black women inside the workplace and outside? It goes to the heart of what you're saying, which is to listen and to listen with empathy and understanding. It can happen in any conversation, in a relationship or a friendship. When you go to the person and you say, well, this is what I need. Sometimes people are triggered by that because if when you say this is what I need, it's like, okay, so I'm not giving you what you need. There's always, you know, your antenna go up because now this is an accusation and this means that I'm not giving you enough and I've given you what I can. Why are you now coming to me and telling me this is what you need? That feels unfair. That feels like an attack. And I think for the allies, the advocates, the leaders, the people that are in the majority, Black folk are asking, Black women particularly are asking for empathy, understanding, space to make ourselves heard. And then those that are in earshot, the best thing they can do is listen, not be defensive, not feel like it's an attack, but really go inside themselves and say, what can I do to help? And there's spheres of influence. I tell people, you don't have to do what Liz does because people say, I could never do what you do. You're so outspoken. You're so vocal. That's me. I've been that way since I was a kid. And I think tapping into that has been my superpower, but I'm not asking everyone to do that because everyone's superpower is different. 
So your sphere of influence can be your household. It can be your children. It can be the PTA meeting. It can be when you're in the grocery store. It can be your workplace. It can be a Zoom meeting. Wherever you are a leader, for me, it was my classroom. And I tried to make a difference in that sphere. My sphere just became bigger. But the way that I acted in my classroom is how I act now. I have not changed. My students will tell you, this is how I am. I have not changed that. Who are you at your core? And if that person is a person that cares about other people, is genuine and wanting the best for other people, exemplify that. It's really not as hard as we make it seem. And I think if people do that internal work, then it reflects in your external. There's no way it can't. Because if you're a good person, you're a good person everywhere you go. You don't pick and choose where to be a good person. And that's what I would ask people to do. Liz, thank you so much for joining us. It is such a pleasure to speak with you. And I really look forward to reading more about what you put out and the continued conversation that you're really promoting. It is so powerful. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Such a great conversation. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Liz Liba. I really appreciate her reframing of imposter syndrome to imposter treatment. It conveys that women don't need to be fixed, but rather that we need to change societal expectations and make the environment more accepting of their skills and strengths. I look forward to continuing to share this message and driving change. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com WOTM. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.